Well, hello and welcome to episode 90 of the world famous Tetrapod Zoology podcast. Uh, podcasts. I'm Darren Nash and I podcast with John Conway. And today we've got a special guest. We have had special guests on the show before, but our special guest today is John Favreau. Hello, John. Good morning or afternoon, depending on what time you're listening to this. <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah, thanks so much for being with us. Um, yeah, kind of a big deal. So we're very happy you're able to join us. Oh, it's my pleasure. We've worked together for so long, Darren. It was the least least we could do is have a nice informal conversation uh, away from all of the all of the challenges around our uh, our Apple TV Plus uh, prehistoric planet show that we met on. We're always yes. so busy talking about rushing to get the de meet the deadlines and get all the visual effects done. It was nice to have a a relaxed conversation with you because I I always have so many questions for you, and I always feel like we're distracting from the the agenda at hand because there's always a long list of things to get through to get a show like that done in the amount yeah. of time that we have yeah. so now i'll now i'll we'll spiral into some of the more obscure things i'm curious about hopefully today i'd i'd, I'd love that it's, yeah john I, has I, his I, own agenda darren he <laughs> tried to have an agenda and he's got his own one so you know how worse yanks are you know <laughs> we're gonna have so we're gonna have to refer to john c and john f for <laughs> for, for listeners and just in case you can't tell their voices apart and John F, in case in case you don't know, the other John uh, is also involved in Prehistoric Planet. I mean, John, like... Oh, really? I yeah. did not know that. Concept artist or technical artist or... Oh. I do the skeletons that get are you, given to the 3D guys. You may have to screen share for me a little bit, even though the audience at home won't be able to see it. I'd love to see some of your work. Mm, yeah, so... Is that a lot to ask? I'm, that's not good radio. We won't but, do it right now, but we'll certainly okay. do it afterwards. But yeah, like yeah, John John is one of the people that's responsible for building a good number of our assets. You know, as a good good team of people. So, how often do you two uh, get? Are how often are you on the same page, and how often are you in conflict about how things should be depicted? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pleased to say that we have worked together technically for some years have mm -hmm. done we've done books together we did a book in 2014 called all yesterdays which you might know it is kind of regarded as kind of quite important in the modern take on the portrayal of prehistoric animals mm -hmm. and um we i don't think we significantly disagree on on anything really well that's We're, a bit of a small miracle in the paleontology community i've come to learn well yeah, 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 kind of yes and no. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, I think a, a, a key thing about prehistoric planet that I sort of want to want us to touch on is that for people like John Conway and and myself and and mm -hmm. other people that are involved in this at the, the level that we are, it's kind of like the view of these animals that we've brought to, you know, to the screen to us is kind of like finally finally we're able right. to get this out there whereas right. like this is you know so, so there's consensus in the community but uh the adoption of what is held in the community of experts is not necessarily shared by the community at large because they don't have as much access to research as you do i would agree with that is that fair to say yeah that's that's fair to it's say. not just research either it's all well part of it is the ideas of artists that go mm -hmm. back the last 20 years um about sort of the philosophy of how we do this rather than just new discoveries if you see what i mean so right so like there was the, like i i grew up with the old tail dragging stop motion dinosaurs and then that 
changed around the time of Jurassic Park when when they held their tails more like a kangaroo for counterbalance, right? <laughs> well, well, can I, let me for just me, say, for the layman, I yeah, would say. For, yeah, I, I, that's, that's, that was the point. Yeah, it's like the view of Jurassic, so Jurassic Park is made in like, you know, they're making it 91, 92. Mm -hmm. That view, that early 90s view of dinosaurs is a view that was established in, probably in the 1970s, certainly, certainly in the 80s. So Jurassic Park is bringing what's already a, an established old view to the mainstream audience who, of course, are thinking of it as new. So when I grew up going to the Museum of Natural History in New York and I would see the bones of, I guess, what they called a brontosaurus at the time or a T-Rex yeah. that was always had the right nomenclature, you would see the tail. It would be posed with the tail on the ground. But at the time, you're saying that the scientific experts already knew that they would have been holding the tails up yes. high. Yes. Oh, That's the, interesting. So why would that be? Because you'd think scientists would be the ones curating that. Well, this there's <laughs> there's many facets to this. And in this particular case, what do museum mounts look like? Museums often aren't able to update things like skeletal mounts. They don't mm -hmm. have the money, the resources, the people. Mm -hmm. The Natural History Museum in London is unusual because they remounted their Diplodocus in the main hall. I think round about the same time as Jurassic Park, if not just before. Interesting. But but loads of other places haven't. They've still got very out of date mounts because they just don't have the facilities and the funds I understand. to update them. So yeah. So it's so, not it's not a conspiracy. It's more just the resources being uh, scarce. Yeah. There, yeah. There is another thing going on, in that a lot of working scientists, especially back then, didn't really care about dinosaurs all that much. And also didn't care how they were depicted in the general I public. See. This is not what they were interested in. And therefore, there wasn't a tremendous amount of interest in disseminating the newish ideas. And that's interesting because that's like the dinosaur was like the, uh, you know, that was the star. That was the movie star of the that made all the kids want to come to the museum. <laughs> yeah. And dinosaurs, I would say, just just to get this out of the way because I'm involved with visual effects and it's interesting whenever there's a new technology, the first thing people rush to is dinosaurs, whether it's mm. stop motion or CGI or, you know, or the, every innovation seems to people. The first thing they want to do is bring dinosaurs to life. There seems to be some fascination with yeah. dinosaurs that, that span the generations and span uh, age groups and, 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 and cultures. We, we, there's just, and well, you two have dedicated, your lives to this research so uh, and study so you you must have you know it must have really hooked you both very deeply i know we all feel a version of it i'm i'm really happy and excited to be working on the show with you two because it's a, a, a way for me as an adult to you know i go to work but we're, we're talking about dinosaurs all day <laughs> it's not it's not it's it's not you know it's something i would do even if it wasn't my job i find it yeah. really fascinating I think that the popularity of dinosaurs, I mean, that's a huge subject. Entire books have been written about it. Dinosaurs in the, you know, the media, popular landscape. And that in itself is kind of like this weird double-edged sword. Whereas, yes, people like dinosaurs because they do bring the public in. They can always be used to attract the public. Mm -hmm. But that fact also means they're kind of regarded as like a bit of a dirty subject. Like if you're mm -hmm. a proper scientist, you don't mess around with, you know, I see. dinosaurs. That's def that was definitely the case until... Like I would say, late, uh, late twentieth century. So it's amateur hour because everybody. It's like the people who go to the, the nightclubs don't go on the weekends because that's when <laughs> that's when it's amateur yeah. night. Yeah, I it's see. Kind of, so dinosaurs like, is seen as more uh, the not the 
It's yeah, kind fun. of trashy, you know. Yeah, you know, <laughs> for the the better part of the scientist, oh, you work on dinosaurs. Oh. Yeah, really. For most of the twentieth century, true back if, in, yeah. yeah. If you're a proper paleontologist, you work on fossil horses or rodents because that's see. where that's where the quality evidence that's is. Fascinating. And I would have never guessed that. There's definitely a thing, and you know, we talk a lot about what we call the dinosaur renaissance or renaissance, you know, from mm -hmm. the basically late 60s onwards. It's like, wow, dinosaurs are actually really, really interesting for a whole lot of reasons. And people haven't really looked into that. And so now it's Because in my field, dinosaurs have been popping up from Lost World. I mean, the original, you know, stop motion and, and even in King Kong, they're featured all the way through to modern times. So there's been a continuum. Uh, so I would I would have never guessed that. Mm. So on, on that note, I mean, that's a nice segue into uh, had you, I know you, I know your interest pretty well from all the conversations we've had. You're a very science literate guy. Had you been interested in doing a big project on dinosaurs before um, this meeting with Mike Gunton of the BBC's Natural History Unit? Had you ever thought one day I'm going to get to make a big dinosaur movie or a TV show? Or? No, it wasn't because uh, it, I felt like that had already been done really, really effectively. Um, though when they were talking about this n last round of Jurassic Park films, when they were bringing that, you know, it's hard to remember, but there was a, a pulse of, you know, there was the original one that Spielberg did that was, you know, you know, just a groundbreaking on many levels and set the bar high for, you know, on, on, on in so many ways, uh, particularly from my perspective, the use of CGI, because it was done pretty much first there. I mean, it was, there was there were fits and starts around little things that ILM had done, but really it wasn't until Jurassic Park that everybody was like, gee, gee you could really do anything now. And then, uh, but it, it was a real testament to his filmmaking and the artists at ILM, as well as Stan Winston and his people who built the animatronics, that it, it was so uh, well executed. And then you saw a lot of movies using CGI after that that didn't use it nearly as effectively because you didn't have that same level of artistry. But uh, then you had uh, the second film, and then you had uh, the third, and then it kind of went away. And then it came back. It was rebooted, as we say, with, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the version that you're seeing now that uh, has had a number of sequels. Uh, but before that had gone on, what happens, you know, is, is there's a lot of conversation before those projects come to fruition when they start talking to filmmakers and seeing what the interest is and what it could be. And, and as that conversation was going on, I was giving some thought to what, you know, if and what I could bring to it, if that was something that I would, you know, be, if they would want me to do it or something that, that made sense for us to collaborate on. So I'd given it some thought then, but it, it didn't seem, I didn't have any fresh take on it that wouldn't have maybe undermined what the, the uh, how should I put it? The brand of Jurassic Park isn't just dinosaurs. There's a whole look to it. There's an aesthetic. There's a, you know, and and even though it, it was pretty groundbreaking as far as the science it was presenting to the public at the time, consequently, a lot more research had led to there'd be many more feathered creatures and uh, just different. It would, it would have changed the whole look of that show if you really went towards the science. So I didn't think that that was an effective approach either. Uh, so that kind of went away. And then remember, I worked on films like Jungle Book and, and, and Lion King, where we were really diving deep into how to reimagine the pipeline of filmmaking, drawing from 
animation and motion capture and, and, and the technologies that had been innovated by other filmmakers like Jim Cameron leading up to this point. And when we were done with that, we had this whole tool set that we developed built on those initial uh, uh, innovations and which used, used VR, used virtual cameras and all the great uh, rendering techniques that had been developed around CGI by MPC, the, the, the vendor that we work with on, on our show as well. And so when Apple TV came up, came to me with that, that they were working with BBC and the, and, and the people behind planet earth, that was, you know, we were researching pretty heavily what, how planet earth approached, uh, uh, documentary filmmaking so that we could emulate that with the shots that we wanted to look naturalistic. That was really the gold standard for us. And so the notion of actually working with the people that we have been studying, like Mike and his team, was really interesting. And and the idea of just having it geared towards the science of it, and, and not just science, but but innovative science that I had not been aware of, even though you 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 both may have been aware for some time, that felt really interesting. And when something's interesting and makes you feel curious, that's a really good indication that that's something that, as a filmmaker, that you should pursue. And so we were able to plug in a lot of the people and animators that I had worked with with the teams that the BBC had been working with around the documentaries, and it was a really interesting combination. And that's when we started working together, Darren, when I, you know, when, when um, I, I've known you for, for many years, the audience should know, and, and we've had a lot of these conversations both in meetings and also as we've done press and, and traveled around together. And I've always found that part of the job uh, really interesting. And, and so that's how th this came to be. And, and to me, the, the, the storytelling where you're using just the science and, you know, and, the, and they're not singing and they're not <laughs> acting like people, like that was really cool to pull that out of the equation and just really drill down on how to show this stuff in the most, uh, can you get emotion out of these pixels? Can you get emotion out of these naturalistic behaviors and, and, and arrange them editorially in a way that it actually speaks to uh, the empathy of the audience of humans as they look at these creatures and and it's just made me more curious the more i've learned i mean we only show a small fraction of what we discuss and mm -hmm. and maybe we'll get into that a little bit later but but you know the, the the speculation of what these creatures could have looked like what the color breakdowns could have been what what a, a hundred million years of evolution can lead to in complexity compared to what we see in our world today which is for the most part, you know, the species that we're in most contact with, you know, have not had that luxury of, of evolving to that point of differentiation. Mm, yeah, I, th I, I so agree with everything you've said there. I mean, as a, as a, I'm not a student of film, but as an aficionado of film and having seen. No, uh, you're pretty good. You, you hold your own. You, you, could, <laughs> you, you, you know your stuff. Well, uh, Darren's I, brain collecting, um, um, yeah, that collecting brain works on, on a wide variety. Exactly. Of, <laughs> the, the script of the Empire Strikes Back literally on my desk right here. Um, yeah, having seen, yeah, the likes of James Cameron and um, uh, Stan Winston Studios, you know, these many people, I, I, you know, huge fan of so many things that, have, that you have seen come together within real time over the, last, over the last couple of decades. The fact that you've seen all that work done to bring things to life, whatever, whether they're sort of machines or aliens or you know strange creatures, and then to marry that with the way that we are now able to do things in CG in the context of like what we actually know about science, I think that's, that's at least part of why Prehistoric Planet has worked. It's standing on the shoulders of, of so many proverbial giants beforehand. And the, the timing, I mean, I always think that 
So Jurassic Park, enormous benchmark, because like you can't have a discussion about the role of dinosaurs in popular mm-hmm. culture today without like people always end up talking for hours and hours about Jurassic Park. It's unavoidable. Right. We, we we do mostly really really like it. Um, those of us you know in, involved at the level that uh, people like John Conway and I are, but um, it's kind of they're kind of lucky that they chose to make it at which obviously relates to when Crichton published his book, they're kind of lucky that they made it when they did because they had an excuse that for a bunch of reasons, we're not going to go down the feather route. And as a young person, as a teenager, I always thought, oh, such a missed opportunity. Why couldn't they give us feathered dinosaurs mm-hmm. in 1993? I was so angry about that age 12. Well, I... honestly, <laughs> the technology was not readily available at that yeah, time right yeah, so so there's yeah. a remember there's a hierarchy in, in in what can be depicted effectively in digitally and and you start with you know hard surfaces and what they call like either long uh, fong shaded or lambert shaded um I, I don't know i don't want to get too technical but but the notion of things that are maybe reflective you know like luxo jr remember pixar with the, yeah, the, the ball and the and the lamps yeah that's a very uh, easy thing relatively easy thing to, to yeah. depict at the time of course very challenging because you have a lot of you know it, it's all about processing power and and as you get further and further away from that to scales and then to things like hair and fur it wasn't really until we were working on jungle book not that long ago that i felt comfortable that you could do photorealism with because mm-hmm. there's so much it's not just the depiction of the texture but it's also simulations that you have to run as the as the hairs or feathers crash into one another, because there's, you're, we're just experts. Everybody's an expert in, in, in the reality of what we see in the natural world. And the minute it, it gets uncanny or weird or looks like you're cheating or faking it, it, it just takes you out of it. And, and, and our job is to, is to create the illusion that you're seeing something that's actually real. So mm. that, it, it would not have been possible. Stan Winston could have built great things with feathers, but the minute you went to CGI, you would have you would have it would have broken the the trick would have been ruined so i don't even know if they had that i don't even know i and i've worked with a lot of those people i'll ask but i don't even know if that discussion was was even part of it with it in the making of books that exist about the original jurassic park they say that they're they're kind of lucky because their consultant dr jack Mm -hmm. horner strangely was quite conservative on this issue now jack jack horner Mm -hmm. Um, is quite well known as one of the kind of like leaders of the building the modern view of dinosaurs. Today he's a bit of a controversial character, but back then it was like, wow, this is a guy who's got the goods. He's coming up with all this new stuff on them. And Alan Grant, the character in Jurassic Park, is based on this scientist. Oh, interesting. Horner. Yeah, and Horner um, was has said in recent years that he had this conversation with Spielberg and, and others, feathers, yes or no. And Horner was like, nah, the science is a bit iffy, so let's say no. Whereas mm-hmm. if they had someone like, you know, heaven forbid, like me back then, I would have said <laughs> feathers, feathers forever. You know, well, <laughs> I think, you know, it's interesting because you've you said and we've discussed, we'll probably look back at what we've done and thought that we were very conservative in our in, in the way in the coloration of the feathers. Right. Because I've seen a lot of the artwork that, that you showed me of a lot of concept artists and. It almost looks like sci-fi fantasy when I see the color breakdown of what the crests and and all of the, you know, the plumage looks like as as extrapolating from, I guess, the natural world of birds now and and making some assumptions. But I think we may look back at ours the same way. Yeah, 
what I tend to say when asked about this is prehistoric planets, animals are kind of in the sort of middle zone, the mm -hmm. Goldilo Goldilocks zone. They're yeah, neither. Sure. Yeah, we haven't we haven't been conservative, but we also didn't go as extreme as we as we could. And we well, this did... season we go a little further, don't we? Right. With well, the pterosaur. We we do, but I would still say, and and by the way, uh, the teaser we're speaking on the day on which the teaser for season two has dropped. So people have now seen our brightly coloured Hatsagopteryx, which is what you're referring to. Yes, but but is that a pterosaur? Did I already do I get points off? Yeah, That's you, is a okay. You get, you get you get points for getting that. Okay, yeah, well good. Done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though it's not a tetrapod, a tetrapod, are we are we relegated are... to four legged four limbed <laughs> creatures on this show or? Uh, Tetrapods are all of the limb and digit bearing vertebrates. So it's a okay. specialized subgroup of fishes that amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals, but some of them don't have four limbs anymore. So snakes are still tetrapods, for example. So, oh yeah, okay. We're, we're... I should have. I should... <laughs> well, well we, could, we could cut this out, can't we? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're fine. We're fine. Okay. So, good. Yeah. Um, I, well, that, that leads me nicely to something else I want to talk about. So, you know, you've been introduced. I don't know if it's the first time, you know, you tell me, but the, introduced to like this amazing diversity of these animals, it's clear it's not just dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. It's not just like, it's not just like Triceratops, T-Rex, long neck sauropods. You've also got your remarkable flying pterosaurs. You've got your various, you know, weird sea reptiles mm -hmm. and other animals as well, which will, again, I can't say what's in season two just yet, but um, keep that in mind, what I just said. Uh, what what have you, John, found you know most interesting, most surprising? Are there, are there a group of animals that have like, wow, I had no idea because. Oh, uh, that's an interesting question. I think it was less about species and more about how much we understood about their behavior based on finding a pile of bones, <laughs> and and that to me was the fascinating part of. And I think for and I and I would I would extend that to most people that I talk to. Because there's an assumption that, well, since nobody was there, you could make up whatever you want, like a historical recreation of what happened in the room and in a jury during a, you know, an author, somebody, a filmmaker. If 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 we don't have any counterfactuals, we're given complete permission to dr dramatis, dramatize, dramatize, dramatize every anything, and that's part of a storyteller's prerogative if you're doing historical fiction. So. I think the assumption of most people is, okay, you found bones. Yeah, you could have them do whatever you want. And the plausibility of that is is in the jury of, you know, you know the, the audience is the jury for that. But what's I found most interesting and the people that I talk to are most curious about is actually the way that we extrapolate those behaviors from the research that's done and that mixture of uh, physical evidence and also looking at the way behavior forks in the in the in the natural world among species and that we could make certain assumptions with a, a high degree of certainty you're never completely certain but it's less of a leap than I had assumed and and that's why I think it's nice that we have those those accompanying uh, shows that we have that explain the science behind certain creative choices we made, and now we've even expanded upon it. I think we're doing ten instead of five yep. this year. Uh, that's the part that you know my family, you know, who are more scientifically inclined, really enjoy because I think there's a a disconnect. There's a big gap between the casual understanding of dinosaurs, even among people who consider themselves pretty well versed, and then people who are uh, uh, experts in the field. Uh, there's a 
there's a and, and I think that middle area, that middle ground, as that gets filled in, that's when I think people really begin to appreciate what it is. And not even so much the tech how we technically achieve the photorealism. That's kind of old news for people now. People are used to seeing fake things look real. But it's the science of it and the uh and and the understanding the behavior of these creatures and actually how relatable they are in the way that they rear their young, the way that they mate, the way that they hunt, uh, the way that they migrate. That's the, to me, that's the emotional uh, aspect of it that makes these creatures so relatable and they don't feel primitive or distant or ancient and it just, or from another world. They actually, you see that evolution actually draws them into behaviors that don't feel that far afield of things that we experience as humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, f I find it really interesting, the fact that, so like on the one hand, these animals, and to a degree, all non-human animals, to like well, to some degree are kind of like strange and alien but on the other hand really are not on the other hand it's right. like really operating on the same things that we understand today and so i think you know what what i said quite a lot for uh, the first season was some of the things that we're showing are like this might be surprising to you know a, a member of the audience that hasn't ever seen this before but it's like this is actually an established thing that's quite well known in right. living animals. You just have so for ex example is tool use. Like tool mm -hmm. use is, is no longer unique to humans. It's all right. over the place in the natural world. Another thing is counting. Like counting, like it's been demonstrated that many many animals, including various like fishes and lizards and crocodilians and stuff, they can and birds, they can count up to like a reasonable number. And um, we've been able to demonstrate this. So it's like, it's reasonable to like extrapolate that behavior to extinct dinosaurs so just just knowing enough just knowing a lot about the living world you haven't had we don't really make this this could be like a broad brush sort of comment or criticism but it's like there isn't really a genre of natural history that exists where people say you know there isn't the opportunity to say let's look at the relationship between a given group of animals and fire, how they've adapted to fiery landscapes, or or there isn't, you know, the opportunity to say loads of animals can count. Here's a documentary about animals that can count. So it's almost like in a TV show like Prehistoric Planet, where people are expecting or hungry for uh, the the deep dive, the the background story. That's like, almost like your only chance to say, like, mm -hmm. did you not think that this? this but body language, you know, I, I got asked so much about body language, and it's like, what what do you know about the fossil body language of extinct dinosaurs, Darren? It's like, well, nothing. There's like no dinosaur giving you a body language thing, but all of their living relatives obviously are doing body language all the time, and and this is the phylogenetic bracketing thing we spoke a lot about for season one. Um, we're not really we're not really doing it on season two because we've all felt we've done quite a lot of it on season one. The fact that if you find behaviours common to crocodilians, sometimes lizards as well, and also in birds, well then you can be pretty confident that your extinct dinosaurs would have done it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's just that their anatomy is so incredible. If a sauropod with a thirty foot long neck is going to do like a sky point display, which it would do based on what crocodilians and lizards and birds do. That's like a pretty ridiculous prospect, but it's also not. It's also like totally commonplace, you know. I think to tie this back to what was happening, because I see a lot of parallels between the what's happening in dinosaur scientific land and artistic land leading to Jurassic Park as what's been happening behind the scenes leading to um, prehistoric planet. And I think one of the behavioral aspects you see in Jurassic Park, you know, active hunting, um, 
and just the depiction of dinosaurs is super dynamic um very different to what people were used to i think we've had a similar sort of revolution it's a bit more subtle but it's about well we we don't have evidence for this particular thing but we know this sort of thing is widespread so let's apply it to possibly a random dinosaur or a prehistoric animal but we know this sort of thing went on we just don't know which particular ones did it um and previously that would have been considered too much too speculative whereas i think we darren and i have argued that well it gives a false impression that there's not um weird things going on if you never show them right you mm. don't show the brightly colored ones you don't show the strange behaviors display behaviors people think that that never went on whereas we know yeah. it did we just don't know which particular ones yeah so that's where you can say that prehistoric planet in one sense was conservative because if you think of the the unusual or edge of the envelope things that we did show it was like it's like three or four things like series one it's the carnotaurus dance the dreadnoughtus neck displays mm -hmm. and the use of the air fire sacks. the air yeah. sacks yeah and the fire thing in in the, we show true daunted uh we show two different predatory dinosaurs using fire and yeah it's not like every sequence is like push it to the limit that's like how <laughs> how how crazy how strange can we make our animals and again i think that you know my justification for all those sequences is this 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 copies what you just said john c is like we have to at least plant the seed in people's minds that the living world is very strange there's all kinds of animals doing things that you wouldn't predict based just on anatomy alone especially not bony anatomy you've got to keep in mind that would have been possible and as john f you've heard me say this enough times it's like dinosaurs are over the top they're extreme animals mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so they're not going to be just contrary to the sort of very old conservative view they're not just lying out in the sun all day and then eating for two hours they are interacting socially a lot they are doing extreme things they're engaging in extreme acts of predation they're very vocal they've got excellent senses and some things about their world which are a little bit different from the modern world means that they would have been in in some way sometimes really surprising to us uh, two examples that john c and i've spoken about before one is eggs Everybody in the world at the at the age of dinosaurs, the age of dinosaurs, nearly everyone is laying eggs and lots of them. So today you're wandering around on the African savanna. How often do you find a clutch of eggs? Well, I don't know. Every now and again, if you're lucky, and there's ostriches there, but generally it's rare. Whereas in the Mesozoic, they're everywhere. You like there's going to be like clutches of dinosaur eggs all over the place, which then means that come on, surely animals of all kinds must have been familiar with eggs must have had techniques to like use eggs as a resource the animals producing the eggs must have had resources must have had m means of you know like conceding the eggs or preventing them from being predated or what have you and we know we know almost nothing about that so i think it's like valid to suggest that in the age of dinosaurs the particularly the jurassic and the cretaceous there would have been so there probably would have been such things as increased use of like tools to break into eggs there probably would have been you don't need to be an egg specialist to still eat eggs every day can you imagine like a tyrannosaurus rex finding a nest of eggs and eating them all you know why not it's like we love eggs and there's nothing special about us that makes us egg eaters and and so forth and so on and so forth that's like that's one example another one is the fire thing if a lot of these animals are living in fire prone landscapes as the geological evidence shows they were 
Still not entirely sure why this is the case, but it the, the, the geological evidence shows that lots of Cretaceous landscapes were fire prone. Then modern animals that live in fire prone landscapes know what to do when there's fire. They either get the hell out of there or mm. they know how to they take, you know, account of uh wind patterns. They know where to stand, where is safe to be, they know what kind of burn it is, they know where they can hide. Or if they're predatory or omnivorous, they know how to take advantage of animals that are less fortunate and don't escape. So you, you patrol the edge of the fire and you look for like little lizards and bugs and things that are running away from the fire. And yeah, we've we've um, incorporated. But we that. took the leap that that that, we, that one of them was actually starting fires with uh, an ember. And I rem if I remember correctly, you extrapolated that because we see that in the bird in birds in modern day. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, so on the one hand, there's like, I think from what I've just said, it's like, to me, it feels justifiable to like, like I say, imagine these, these animals would have known what to do in fire prone landscapes. On the other hand, of course, it being a TV show, and I, I think I've already said this, repeating myself, we are often deliberately showing things to make it more entertaining. We're sometimes pushing at the edge of the envelope, but not all the time. And so for that reason, you're looking for particularly exciting uh, and sometimes even controversial behaviors in the living world and and yeah that we we but that does exist you're saying that they, i remember they were using using the embers uh to burn like was it ticks and mites off of their skin the, that wasn't that one of the assumptions we made based this, on what birds do and then yeah. also the idea that they were taking embers and spreading the fire in order to That's manipulate right. yeah yeah there's the, two different things sources. yeah there's two yeah. things going on there's there's birds and other animals, including primates, that have, that have got some familiarity with like smoke and will deliberately fumigate themselves and or seem to enjoy smoke. And sometimes it seems like you know they use it to kill parasites. They'll there's there's a bunch of birds that will hold yeah like a burning ember like literally in their feathers. And then there's also birds where it's been claimed by witnesses that um, <laughs> <Okay>. they <laughs> yeah that they spread. It's an interesting story because it's... when they're on the defense on the stand, <laughs> a bird did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they've they've been they've been seen spreading fire around. It mostly comes from indigenous Australian knowledge, and so it's actually like crediting it is like quite a sort of win for like you know where we get our information from across humanity. Right. It's 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 controversial among European scientists, but uh, it's it's a published observation. So I see. Yeah, we I think we're right to uh yeah, to credit it and um right. I, I th there's some scientists that are experts on fire dynamics in the modern world and I can't remember his name. There was one in particular and he loved our sequences in prehistoric planet. He mm -hmm. really went to town on it. He's like, "Oh my god, I'm so happy that they showed this and this and this and this because Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um uh do you have any particular favorite animals that you've really liked seeing come to life? Or, in our show? Yeah. Well, well, uh, uh, prehistoric animals in general, but in prehistoric planet as well. I I like the um well, let, let's see. We had the the well, the Ankylosaurus I liked. If you noticed in if you're watching uh, the Mandalorian, you'll see that there's a giant kaiju, uh basically Ankylosaurus that's living, you know. It, I the saw only that thing saw that yeah. tail club. I know what you're doing there. I saw the tail club. Yeah. I, and it's not consciously. It's like I just, when I'm writing things, I just start describing things. But we're working so closely together here that uh, it's, you know, it, it starts to work its way in. Uh, it's certainly in the behaviors as I'm as I'm giving notes on the animation of these creatures. 
you know, but of course you're just like everything else in Star Wars, we're kit bashing things. You know what that term is? Oh yeah, a, I'm a, you know what the term means? Yeah, I've I've got some toy dinosaurs and models and stuff. In case you didn't know, <laughs> exactly. So the idea of kit bashing, uh, you know, in Star Wars, they, you know, uh, historically, from when it was a low budget production, when George Lucas was originally making it, he, you know, couldn't fabricate things from scratch. There weren't digital assets, of course, and so he would do, use things like go to the prop shop and take, uh, you know, vintage. World War II costumes or weapons and then adjust them. And, and so they call that kit bashing. Uh, the most, I think, probably the most famous example is the way that he would build the, um, or the people at Kerner, the model makers would build like the starships as they would just buy, you know, as many World War II battleship models as they could and just break all the little pieces up. They call them griblies. And then they would just glue them together to create those very specific, but at the same time, nondescript textures that gave it a, a you know, a, a, a detailed feel uh, and that felt familiar because it was mixing the old with the new. Uh, and that's called kit bashing when you, or, or you'll take two different vehicles and put them together. So we do a lot of kit bashing and Star Wars in general. And so I think we've sort of extended that to creature design as well. So as I describe things in my writing, I'll, I'll, I'll make it oxymoronic so that you'd have to say it's a turtle, but it's also a crocodile and it's also a, a, a dinosaur and it's also, and then the artists that we have figure that out. And then we, you know, and a lot of the people that we work with on the art front, uh, they, you know, they've, they've had, they've worked with George. So there's um, a continuum of taste that started from the original films all the way through the, the prequels and into the sequels in our film on our show as well. So an aesthetic has been established just through kind of crowdsourcing it among the experts who've worked around Star Wars for a long time to see, does it feel like Star Wars, which is a kind of whole other conversation as to what defines that. But usually it's consensus among people who have a deep love and experience in that world. Uh, and then, and then, and then to bring in things from the natural world to help inspire new things that feel familiar, but yet original and different. But if you get too original and different, it doesn't feel like Star Wars anymore. Mm. So, so a, a lot of um, a lot of what I've learned from working with uh, on this project and with you is is you know, uh, behavioral details that we can that can um, inform the way that we, you know, present things that feel novel. Because one of the challenges we've had on the Mandalorian is we're we're making a lot of hours of Star Wars compared to what was originally conceived for the films. If you just look at the you know just look at the the the, the you know, just the chart of, you know, how, you know, each episode, how many seasons we've done compared to what George uh, was faced with, with, with uh, three movies originally. So, you know, you're trying to find new stuff, but you also don't want to get too far away from what people love about Star Wars. And and so the natural world uh, and also other, uh, other stories and other characters, you know, George Lucas always looked to classic cinema uh, whether it was World War II movies or samurai films or westerns to draw inspiration from as, as far as the archetypes and story structure goes. And and so Star Wars is more of a a, um, a skinning of something as opposed to the underlying genre. You know, often it's a, it's a take on something that's familiar but put through the lens of what Star Wars might be. So you'll see a lot of like very classic samurai standoffs and things mm -hmm. or gunfights or... Um, Dam Busters or Battle of Britain and then he, he would actually cut with that footage when he was assembling his films 
and, and uh, as far as the uh, the dog fighting goes, and then he would do his version through all the new technologies he was innovating. So I, I just sort of a roundabout answer to say mosasaurs. Mm. Uh, I was very <laughs> I found cool. them fascinating. I found mosasaurs fascinating. The the ammonites also that was the surprise for me when we actually started depicting all the different shapes of ammonites together. Uh, that th I was not expecting much from from scripting all the way through storyboarding and even previs. But once the, the plates were shot underwater and we started rendering these creatures, and then you hear Sir David Attenborough's voice, which we should, you know, we'd be remiss to not say, you know, the importance of what hearing him say, speak these words and, and us having the neural pathways carved out from watching him over the years, walking us through the scientific world and then to have him, uh, you know, hold our hand and take us through these stories uh, is, I think, probably more important than any of the any of the uh, technical innovations that we were able to depict. There's something about that. Remember, it's a combination of things. It's not just what you're seeing with your eyes. It's it's how you engage. You, you know, remember, cinema really comes from, you know, the tradition of illusionists and magicians. And and that's the, you know, you, you talk to people who've been at it long enough and they really talk about it like you would at presenting a new trick to an audience of how do you, you know, except in this case, we're letting you know we're fooling you. We're not trying to scam you. We're So we're letting you in on it like a good magician would, right? And then we're, and then on top of that, we're using every tool that we have to, to create this believability to what we're showing to the point that hopefully the audience is delighted and surprised. And Sir David Attenborough is probably the most important element of that magic trick. I feel conflicted now as to whether I should pick up your Star Wars points, uh -huh. start talking about like how unusual and surprising ammonites are, or start. I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed to talk about David Attenborough anecdotes because obviously at this point I have many. It's been a because I actually got to hang out with him, you know, on the um, during all the making of stuff, and um, I mean, you know, what can you say? What a, what a legend that man is, but. Uh, and, and really, really bright, like playful spirit too, oh, and yeah, youthful, yeah. and everything you'd hope, right? He That's so nice when yes. you meet your heroes and they actually oh yeah, go live on up so to well. and exceed your expectations. Yeah, he's got a great sense of humor. He's he's phenomenally nice, if you know. And um, but of course, he's ninety six years old. He's not tweeting every day, you know, like some of us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so you know meeting up with him after a while he would say so what do people do people like it and i don't know what i said what do you mean they, do they like prehistoric planet <laughs> and it, because he hasn't no he must have got the memo but um maybe he didn't it's like david people are like like very very much liking this the reception is extremely positive so uh yeah absolutely i mean to have him involved wow just the the cherry on the top of the the icing. And he isn't, you know, and he's picky about what he gets involved with. And certainly at that age, you don't have to work, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, as a matter of fact, it's quite, it's quite challenging to figure out the logistics of how to make all of it, you know, come together. Oh yeah. And, and so the effort that he must've had to put into this and his relationship with Mike Gunton as well, which is, I find really charming because they've worked together and collaborated for so many years. Uh, it just is, I, I really feel, um, you know, part of part of what's special about what I get to do in my career is is when I get involved with a project, I have this. I, I just get immediately teleported into the inner core of whatever the industry is that I'm telling a story about. 
So, you know, if I'm, if I'm studying to be a chef, I get to meet all the best chefs in the world. If you're studying to, you know, if, if there's somebody teaching you martial arts for a movie or working on fights, it's the best people in the industry. And I would say the same thing here that, you know, if you're going to learn about something, if you're a curious person, it's such a great job because I get to talk to people like you and I get to talk to people like Mike and, and then, and then we go to museums and they open up all the doors for us and we're right there looking at their collections of, and, and, and then have somebody actually like look at you and explain it right to you and to be able to ask questions and not, you know, it, it's fun enough when you're watching videos on YouTube, but when you actually have these people in front of you and you, and you really pick up on the energy and the, and mm. the excitement and enthusiasm, you know, and that's how people like Steven Spielberg, you know, he could really hold his own in a conversation about dinosaurs. I've had those conversations with him before I ever even worked on this uh, because he learned so much around that film and cares so much. And that's, you really have to do that if you're going to show something uh, that that feels like it's uh, authentic. So you and, got? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go on. Go ahead. No. I was going to say Louis Chiappi showed you around Los Angeles County Museum, uh -huh. right? So, so you I, must I have seen so. behind the scenes unpublished stuff, and or... yeah, just that they let they lay it out in front of you, and you actually get to handle these things, and and then they contextualize it for you, and then. And just being able to walk around the museum with somebody who knows mm. what they're doing and and giving, you know, treating you like a peer for that one moment is really, um, it's really, uh, I don't know, there's a human element to what, I think, what we're all drawn to about, you know, even though we're, we're studying things that are, you know, might be ancient or extinct, it's. I think it, the older I get, the more I realize it's. A, it's about the community of people that are excited about these things. That's really what draws you in. It's. It's shared interests. It's us bonding on levels of things that we think are specific to us, and then we find other people who feel that way. And what's nice about this moment we're in is, is you know, you could argue the pros and cons of technology and social media and such, but one. I think one of the good effects of all of this is that like-minded people are able to find each other. Now, sometimes they yell at each other <laughs> and sometimes they um, support one another. But but you're always learning and you're and you have access to people, because if you were the kid that liked dinosaurs and you're in a small town in the Midwest, there might not be anybody else who likes them. And you have to wait and read books or magazines. And now you could connect with those people, whether that's gaming or whether that's, you know, um, Star Wars, Dungeons and Dragons, you know. Uh, certain types of music, you could find like-minded people and create communities. So we're in this weird transition point where we're all coming together in a way like we never had around these interests, but we're also, unfortunately, it's also, I think, over-indexing for conflict, which so we're, at the same time, we're kind of being pushed apart. And I hope that, you know, this next generation finds a way to really reap the benefits of all of this without without the negativity that seems to accompany it. That that's an interesting point. I mean, I, I have, I've heard this more than once. The fact that, um, I mean, on the scientists in general, as are often quite passionate, you know, in a, in a good way about their interests, and contra the stereotype that they're sort of like closed off, aloof people. They actually often, not across the board, but you know, mostly work really hard to mm -hmm. share that information. Yes. And there's all kinds of you know people involved in science that go out of their way to you know do school visits to visit areas where people don't normally have that much interaction with science or with right. higher institutions and whatnot so so doing something like you know prehistoric planet is obviously it's kind of mostly done for entertainment but as also like a massive educational outreach project 
I think like I I I really like these stories where you know I I have like a friend in say you know Mexico or something and they're like I sat down with my grandma and she had no concept that these animals existed and you know she's got a good guide so like I'm telling you like all about this stuff and well that's like you know what a what a massive uh, hopefully positive <laughs> uh, world change um, you know and a, a real educational thing I used to enjoy telling my grandma about dinosaurs because she just thought they'd all died in the ice age. And um, you know, had the, the Vegas content. I, I used to take around my toy Tauntaun, my Tauntaun, right? To her, and she was like, "Oh, those animals, yeah, they died out in the ice age, didn't they?" I was like, <laughs> Actually, this did live millions of years ago in a galaxy far, far away, but That's not right. not Earth. So, uh... well, I think um, just going back a little bit, I think there's you're saying it's it's done mostly for entertainment. I don't think there's a huge difference between this sort of entertainment, anyway, and scientific outreach. I think it's the same thing because scientific outreach for what purpose what what's the purpose well the purpose is uh is entertainment actually it's it's really interesting and fulfilling to know about real things in a, and learn surprising things and that is entertainment the highest mm. form of entertainment i'd say in some ways obviously huh. it doesn't have to be a um well it doesn't it, it you get that in fiction it's telling you truths about and and right. things about our humanity and the way you perceive the world but yeah i think this is yeah, I think it's actually the same thing. Occasionally, these things come together really nicely. Yes. Yes. So, so John F. should tell you that John C. is best known for his work on the Asdarkid pterosaurs, the gigantic giraffe-sized pterosaurs that, of course, we show in British Light Planet. And you've actually yes. worked on them and sort of reconstructed them and handled the bones of them. That was a challenging one because that one was when when you do when you line up all the math, it's does not look like it should be able to do what it does. And I know that for our animators, that was very challenging. And But there's something, I think that's, I would put that in the category of surprising and fascinating because just how dangerous and, and big they were. And then also how much, um, I guess the assumption we're making is that a lot of it was geared around uh, courtship and, and the coloration and crests and things. So on top of, having to fly and on top of being so big with such a light skeleton also putting a lot of um evolutionary energy into how they look as well for you know for for courtship purposes is you know you're you're juggling a lot of uh chainsaws there as a species <laughs> you have a lot a lot to contend with and to make it look real and then we also know things about their uh right their gait and their stride from uh, fossilized evidence and things that might not be that intuitive like the way their digits would be dragged as they walk through the you know on the ground and how effective they were on the ground and good hunters and also how they take off like all these things that we have to think about as we bring it to life because if we don't pull it off the audience just clicks there you know they subconsciously just turn off to it uh I, I will say, however, that the combination of your artwork and, and, and the artistry of our animators really made it quite convincing, and it was not without its challenges. But I have to say that that's probably the most surprising species that, uh, as far as something I never knew, even if, you know, I thought of pterodactyls, you know, that was, you know, when you think about uh, um, King Kong, and that's, it's <laughs> super cool. And then I think also in Jurassic 3, I think there was exploring that more. And they, they pop up now and again in those series. But to see them actually the way that they uh, 
mate, the way that they rear their young, the way that they hunt, the way they move through those biomes that you don't expect to see them in. And we show them on the beaches and we show them in the forests and how scary they were. Because if you just looked at it like one of the figures off a of Darren shelf, a plastic figure, you wouldn't pick that out as a ferocious creature. <laughs> but then when you see it sized up against other ones and, and how you know they behave and how dangerous they are, it, it just is, uh, I think they're, they're right up there with the, with the apex predators as far as how intriguing they are. Pterosaurs have been, especially the really large ones, have been a real challenge amongst the paleontological community. And uh, part of it is lack of expertise. They are, you know, you need to be an aeronautical engineer to understand right. a lot of it. Right. Um, and there's not a lot of people that know aeronautical engineering and um, are really pretty good biologists as well. There's single digits of them. And there's um, so many, there's so much evidence too of like just that, what's the, which, which species has the, uh, that long branch-like crest that extends for meters? Oh, yeah, that was Barbridactylus, which is one of the nyctosaurs. So there's a, there's a reasonable number of nyctosaurs, but... Um, oh God, who knows what's yeah, going on with there's... these critters? I mean, they're so weird, John. But they're you know so it's weird. there, so we have to deal yeah, with no, it. And it's like, it's what, why, there, we... why is there huge, like... A stick coming off their head that it, it and it has to fly and it has to fight and uh, and so what's that for and so I guess we extrapolate that's for display. Yeah, is that is that the is that yeah? Kind I of mean, what we... it's so difficult because if you were just having to guess, pterosaurs, especially large ones, are under such um constraint. They're 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 right on the edge, especially the biggest ones of the biggest things we think can take off. Right, right. So you'd think everything around them would be geared to flight and right um, and taking right. off but instead but you, you got to reproduce too <laughs> really expensive display structures way more I elaborate know. than you would see in other animals and I, I think this is still actually there's something about pterosaur biology we're not quite getting it's my is my sort of feeling what, there's what something here we're not quite well why do pterosaurs keep going into these elaborate ter structures when we would otherwise expect them to be so constrained and I don't think we've really solved that. I think we we can be fairly sure that they are display structures, right? I mean, what else could they be? They're, people and have had usually, ideas, and, but they don't display, work out. But... And display is usually for uh, mating purposes, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know, you don't get you don't get lots of smaller animals that aren't under such um, crazy selection evolving well, enormous where you display get, structures. You do I think get that's some. Where you get... So many pterosaurs do it. Anyway, when sorry, you have yeah. so many millions of years of evolution, you start to push the extremes. Start to become, you know, you start to spread out among the possibilities. Start to become more likely over the differentiation over that much evolutionary time. Because if somebody came to, if, if somebody arrived like and saw our fossilized evidence as humans and be like, why are the boats so big in Monaco? Like, why are they? <laughs> Why is a yacht hundreds of feet long when just Aren't a few humans only years six ago? foot tall? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it's like, well, it's a display. You know, it, it, it's a, it's a, it, clearly it's a, it's a, you're doing it to signal something beyond just seaworthiness. So I think that you get like, and just like the coloration, I, I know we talked about it in the beginning, but to me, that's still the fascinating part. And, you know, and, and as technology is always being used with dinosaurs, there, there's all this new, AI associated technology. I wonder how, you know, that's going to be applied to, you know, the imaginative, uh, 
conception of what dinosaurs could have looked like in a way that goes maybe even beyond the imagination of the handful of um, artists who who are exploring that particular area of uh, you know dinosaur design because there was you showed me a few people Darren that 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 you know a few a few examples of artists where they where they really um, embrace the plumage and the coloration and and um but it seems like not a mainstream course but now there's such opportunity for creativity and visualization of things now that we have mm. all of these machine learning tools i wonder if there's going to be a renaissance of of uh, exploration in those areas because it's just it's, it's like if you do a google search you'll 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 have to dig pretty deeply to find that that view but there's something that's yeah, very but I've evocative never been very clear why that is because there's an awful hard. lot of it out there, right? You know, the there's a there's some really irritating young guys that Darren's probably showing <laughs> you who has everything called Paleostream. And they are absolutely prolific. They do it like is it every night or every week? But anyway, every they night. turn out every night and they turn out like twenty or thirty good paintings that they all do in a Zoom in a Discord. So, so it's something old. where they're, they're, these are artists that are using like Photoshop, or is it? Or, yeah, or Photoshop actually painting mostly. on canvas. Yeah, Photoshop mainly. Uh, iPads these days, I think mostly. Right, um, right, right. Yeah. Um. So it's not like there's a dearth of this. There are literally tens of thousands of paintings out there, but Google doesn't like them, which well, is really it's interesting. Also like, I think Google is. I don't think there's a board at Google saying let's down <laughs> let's downvote no, this. I not. think it's more it's, yeah. it, it more becomes about about the zeitgeist, just like with the feathers, where they were like right on the bubble around Jurassic Park. I'm like, well, it probably is, but it just doesn't feel right yet. Like there's a there's a curve of adoption when it comes to anything that's disruptive or innovative or um, groundbreaking. And in the scientific community, I guess it's there's the there's the assumption that you know well it's all fact based, but but really it's it's humans deciding what we are how how we how we weigh the evidence, and and also the it's not like evidence like when you find that you know when you find fossilized remains where it's irrefutable, it's still it's still even though it's 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 probably extremely likely it still could be viewed as conjecture so it just takes time for people to adopt these things and honestly it you have to show people people have to have a mental image of what it is and once they start to become comfortable and familiar with it then the understanding is almost a secondary um, mm. a, a secondary wave so you're hitting people on a gut level you're, you're hitting with them with is this something that looks scary looks funny looks believable looks new because we're still you know we're still mired down by our evolutionary you know shortcomings or or how we evolved and there's a you know we are we move in a crowd we are interdependent we survive because of our cooperation and and so the group there's there's always a few outliers who are going to be running deep 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 into the unknown and there's some people who are going to be holding us back and then there's going to be a combination of people in the middle and i and i Look, I think about this a lot because it's the hero's journey. It's storytelling. It's it's how do you face the challenges of the future? How do you how do you incorporate the traditions of the past and 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 combine them with innovations of uh, facing the challenges that we're presented with? And that combination is the you know that's the archetype of the hero, the one that could draw upon the past and and but yet be able to. Uh, 
accommodate those traditions for the future to face the challenges of the unknown that previous generations hadn't had to face. And I think that you see that ripple through everything. I think even in this case with science, it's like you have people who are innovative and pushing things forward, people who are making discoveries, and ultimately the whole group migrates in that direction. So like if you talked about feathered dinosaurs now, that would be, I think, something that would be accepted by everybody in a way that it wasn't decades ago. And even Jurassic Park in that sequence that they did that I found fascinating, where we go back in time and find the uh, spoiler alert, I think we go back and find the uh, the source of the uh, the mosquito with the DNA that was originally cloned. <laughs> mm-hmm. They really showed a naturalistic environment where they really it looked like they were trying to show, I guess, um, a, a snapshot of the Cretaceous period. Though I think Darren, you said there were a few anachronistic uh, uh, animals in there. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a Holly, it's a Hollywood imagining. Of- it's a Hollywood version yeah. of it, but it was more. I think it was more scientifically accurate or uh, aspiring to c- cinematically and also the depiction of the animals and there were there were a lot of different um right weren't there feathered there were a lot of feathered creatures there yeah. as well yeah they put feathers so, on some things yeah so, so even that franchise is kind of moving into that direction as well so i think that there's an adoption curve that that every uh, established you know subgroup has and we you know we're always pushing the limits and pulling it back and penduluming and vacillating back and forth Mm. but uh but i think for people who are you know i I do think that there's something really interesting about this other view of what dinosaurs were and could have been with all of the imagination and color and and you know just like because like you're pointing out like you have this what's the big uh the big crest called that that big branch like crest coming off of the pterosaurs well head. there is no, there isn't a name for it other than head crest that the head crest that extends out several meters that you know as john points out probably revol- uh, evolutionary did not help flight it, it probably was a, a limitation and and with how light those bones had to have been it had to be fairly fragile as well yeah that you're protecting this thing that is you know and that's one thing that we have hard evidence on. Well, what else would that imply about their plumage and what their coloration, if that's part of it? You don't just have one thing. And maybe that species did, but others would probably have their own versions of it that we can't find fossilized evidence of because mm. it was soft tissue or something that you can't get pigment information from. Uh, so I, I don't know. I To me, that's that's where... I would go deeper into it, but the minute you lose the connection to the audience, they don't want to tune in anymore. You got to kind of push them just as far as you can. Yeah. Uh, but I think there is something fascinating in this in this field. Yeah. When when those uh, antler crested nyctosaurs were first discovered, the assumption was there must be a giant uh, kind of wind sail between the spars. I see. Um, and John, in fact, was guilty of uh, one of a handful of artists who first did that vision of it. But then it's like, wait a minute. It's like, it does the bone texture support that kind of mm-hmm. sail or that kind of stretch? It doesn't. What does it mean aerodynamically? So people have made life-size models of them and tested right. them in wind tunnels. In wind tunnels, and yeah. Our current thinking is that this is probably an extreme example of what's called Zahavian handicap principle or peacock's tail syndrome, which is you can guess what it is it's like having an elaborate structure sometimes shows that you've got great genes because look i'm able to survive despite the fact i've got this stupid two meter long pole sticking out of my head so my genes are best you should definitely have children with me you know that's our 
but downside account with this stupid crest <laughs> well, so stupid like crest. if you found fossilized <laughs> evidence of a peacock i mean who would assume that that's what it would look like I... well we've got fossil peacocks many of them and none of them of course have got their feathers preserved so if we didn't have the living ones we would think it was know. a chicken you think it was a <laughs> uh funnily enough in the the la brea tar pits the most abundant animal at la brea is the La Brea turkey. They've got tens of thousands, that's not an exaggeration, tens of thousands of La Brea turkeys. And until the 60s, they thought it was a peacock. So when you look at these reconstructions of like what Los Angeles was like, you know, 20,000 years ago, it should have been wall-to-wall peacocks. Right. <laughs> and it was always never... Thanksgiving. <laughs> they never they never did. They never showed the... They might show one turkey right. hiding in the bush, but... Never look. Right, there should be that, right? That, that's the <laughs> yeah. evidence. So we don't yeah. listen. We don't always listen to the evidence if it doesn't sit right with us, you know, as far as the way that we visualize things. Mm, in that case, maybe it was good that they were conservative and didn't do like the La Brea, the La Brea peacock. It's uh, a <laughs> peacock everywhere. You couldn't move yeah. in prehistoric California for them, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that the not the so thing... different to today, Darren. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I hear they were delicious, though. That's, that's <laughs> the one thing we could be sure of. Well, there are there are fossil people at La Brea as well, so yeah, maybe there's <laughs> there's an overlap there. But um, yeah, I, do I saw a documentary these... about that Encino Man. <laughs> <laughs> isn't so? Yeah, isn't I think that's called California Man. It got two different names, two different releases. Whatever. That's a tangent. Um, yeah, the fact that a lot of these very weird pterosaurs are from late in pterosaur history, and mm -hmm. pterosaurs were around for like more than 150 million years. Mm -hmm. So, is it we tend not to like talking about the idea of like increasing complexity and right. sort of building on complexity in evolution? But that obviously is a is a pattern. That is a thing. So, are we seeing that like? You know, there's no reason to think they would have gone extinct. Pterosaurs would have continued evolving if the asteroid impact hadn't hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. But are we just seeing like the birds of paradise style pterosaurs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at that point in their history? Whereas for much of the rest of it, they were more like, you know, brown hawks or thrushes or whatever. Well, that's that the thing is like the surviving species that we have from before the the meteor, right? And there are a lot a lot of them. Uh, they don't have the level of they, they seem to have somehow not kept any sort of level of visual complexity because they all do look like you know turtles or gators or cockroaches or like the things or birds i guess there's birds that have come through that have oh the things that, that survive yeah yeah right to, yeah but to it's not like you look at the older species you know like at sharks and they don't have you know they're not purple and and, and pink <laughs> they're gray you know so you're not you're not seeing a lot of the the all the complexity that evolution of, of, of you know over 100 million years would have given us so i i think the assumption is understandable because what are the oldest species that we have that have survived what are some well, of the the big ones uh things that things that made it through the extinction event yeah well there's there's many other many than groups. the small mammals not the small mammals i mean the you know it's yeah, it's going to be boring things like groups of clams and crustaceans and, mm -hmm. and such like that but the general pattern for su who survives is you have to be small and boring because you have to be low down in the food chain mm -hmm. so that if everything goes to hell you can right. still make a living from rotting leaves or decomposing carcasses and you have to be able to hide. You have to be like be able to hide under a log, you know, for ten years, or or hibernate at the bottom of a pond. But or weren't whatever. there big like pre didn't, weren't sharks around from before the? Uh... 
all of the groups that extinction. you can think of, yeah, everything has a mass extinction. So like, yeah, loads of groups of sharks. They would have been survived. small sharks. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, I it's see. like uh, all those groups. They they're all they've all got species that are like less than a meter long and kind I of are living in the deep oceans. So they it it increasingly looks like everything had an extinction event. I but, see. Um, but yeah, the big cool so, animal. Yeah, so I think it's essentially if you needed more than a certain amount of energy to survive as an individual, you probably wouldn't make it. Right. Which would certainly select against things that were into elaborate display destruction. Right. Because there's yes. a lot of wasted a lot of wasted <laughs> yeah. energy there. Yeah. 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 So we and should... although in normal times they can easily afford it because they're so crash hot. But And it's only yeah. four of you, you don't have trouble mating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they, and they evolve quickly. Those speak there's a re- load of really interesting things about animals with you know, interesting display structures and elaborate sex lives. They all have like really fast evolution. So normally they're pretty, yeah, pretty okay. But uh, but one 10 kilometer wide asteroid slamming into your planet can really ruin your day. So we Someone should to... make a movie about that. Well, should I, I was in I was in one of those. <laughs> yeah, you were. You were. Oh my God, yeah, you were literally on the on one of those asteroids. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you do not have a pleasant death. Blasted into space, I think. But uh... <laughs> that's it. Um, I wanted to. We need to head towards wrapping up, but like what you're saying about kit bashing the Star Wars things. Um, do you know where the original crate dragon skeleton came from? This is the strangest. No. This is the strangest. No. So, so just to give context to the audience, so the crate dragon's the giant creature that starts season two, that was uh, inspired in the Star Wars fandom by an image from the original film now known Star Wars originally but now known as A New Hope where C-3PO is walking through the deserts of Tatooine and passes by a giant skeleton uh, that's laying in the sand behind him and then fans over the years have developed stories around that that it's the crate dragon and that's also the sound that uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi scares off the Tuscans with uh, when when they're looting Luke's la- uh, land speeder so, mm-hmm. but but all, all the only visual uh, indication was was uh, C, was was the droid C three PO walking past a giant what seemed like some a sauropod uh, yeah. skeleton. Yeah, it's a, it's a diplodocus. It's specifically a diplodocus skeleton, apart from a replica skull, and it's the diplodocus that features in one of our dinosaurs is missing. The, it's the same, the nineteen I think sixty four or so. Um, it's the exact same specimen, and they took it out there to Tatooine, as in Tatooine, Morocco. That's right. That's where they yeah, filmed it. They, they, they didn't go to a galaxy far, far away a long time ago, and um, and they left it there. And so over the years, many paleontologists that have done fieldwork in the Moroccan Sahara have gone and collected bits of the this original Diplodocus. Wait, copy. so that was so that was, but it was a copy. What was it like a paper mache? No, it's it was of, cast. Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of presumably. So, but it was glass. it was like it was cast from a real, from real. Um, yeah, fossilized remains. Well, you you've probably heard the story how the steel magnate Andrew Carnegie had a bunch of copies made of the original Diplodocus from like Wyoming or Colorado, no. and sent. Oh, okay. So if you see a Diplodocus in like London or Moscow or La Plata in Argentina or or Paris, it's a copy of this original I see. North American US one. And they took one. a ca- like a traditional casting. They took those the fossils and they they, they did yeah. a, a yeah. plaster cast of it and then and then made copies of each of each vertebrate and then yeah. reconstructed it. I see. 
Yeah, I don't know the exact details of like exactly how they made it, but I know that the the crate dragon skeleton is a Diplodocus from the Disney film One of Our Dinosaurs Is Missing, and in the the special edition, it's, it's, this, this is gonna John Conway's gonna love this. The special edition of the Phantom Menace, they have these giant creatures called Rontos, yes, and those are also bashed versions of the Jurassic Park Brachiosaur. So they're like, how can we get some giant long-necked tattoo Tatooine-style creatures that are ridden by Jawas? What about if we modify Jurassic Park's Brachiosaur? And uh, that's what a Ronto is. It's a Ronto that's turned into a thing that looks a little bit like a giant extinct rhino called Paraceratherium, which is another Star Wars link because the Imperial Walkers, or Atats, yes. Phil Tippett has always said that part of his inspiration for those was the giant extinct rhino Paraceratherium. So... Uh, uh, I'll get any kid bashing past Darren. (laughs) I I could see where you got that Ronto (laughs) design from. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I've now looked up the um, one of our dinosaurs is missing, and I see what you're talking about. Mm, Yes, that's quite a prop they built. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you and you switch the head. Is that what you're saying? I think that. Well, it's not. It's not a real Diplodocus. It's not a cast of a real Diplodocus skull. They they modified it to make it bigger and scarier. Disney, Disney, Disneyfied. Yeah. Do you have a favorite Star Wars creature, either of you? Oh, we have. So we've. I guess uh, Grogu. (laughs) Uh, Slightly biased. (laughs) Little baby Yoda. they're fun, you know. They're fun. I, I, you know, as much as I love building new ones, it's I think the ones from my childhood. It's always fun to be, you know, playing with the Rancor. The Tippet stuff to me is the best. You know, Tippet Phil Tippet. For those who don't know, he's a, you know, this, you know, this uh, amazing stop motion artist who was involved from the very first Star Wars film, and he added, you know, he would pop in and out, but those those collaborations that he worked on with George are probably the most memorable for me as a child, whether it was the chess set, the stop motion chess set the, called Dejeric, mm-hmm. where you see uh, Chewbacca playing against uh, against uh, C-3PO. And, uh, you know, the, the little stop motion version of the combat that takes place there in the Millennium Falcon but also the Tauntaun was his, which was stop motion, but also built as a as a model so that so that Harrison Ford could interact with it and ride on a buck. Uh, the the Rancor, which we recreated for Book of Boba Fett, but uh, that was a com- that was a puppet. They had tried a lot of different techniques. It was uh, they wanted to try to do like a wearable suit originally, like Godzilla. Eventually, they arrived at a very large puppet that could be manipulated and and shot off speed. That, for some reason, really oh, hangs on in my and, and, and many fans' memories. What else did Tippett do? He did, uh, we had him do the little brain spider, the brain spider at the uh, at Jabba's palace. He, he did that. He, of course, he did the walkers, which aren't technically creatures, but, you know, may as well be, because they look like, as you point out, giant dinosaurs. <laughs> and anything, what else am I missing that Tippett did? He did well, some really great uh, thing. Okay, bit of a bit of a weird niche thing, but in, in, in I think it's Ewoks Caravan of Courage. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a kind of a, a flying quadrupedal reptilian dragon mm-hmm. type creature, mm-hmm. and it's it's really good. It's like incredibly well done. That's his. 
And there's also some giant um, saber-toothed kind of like bear-type creature that's a that's the pet of an enormous ogre. Again, in one of the Ewoks movies. Oh, really? Yeah. In Caravan of Courage. It, it might be. Uh, it's been a. I, I, funnily enough, of all the Star Wars films I've rewatched, the Ewoks movies aren't up there among those. <laughs> that no, Christmas so. <laughs> special. Uh, it, it's interesting because a lot of that stuff comes from you know Ralph McQuarrie's artwork too. So there's like this this interesting wellspring, you know, our our sulfur vents in Star Wars is is usually you know George collaborating with, you know, like Ralph McQuarrie, Joe Johnston, Phil Tippett, and those those you know, and and then the model makers and the people from Kerner and the people from ILM, and it was like this little creative uh, incubator that turned out. Not just uh, everybody thinks about the technical innovation, but really like applying scientific curiosity to the designs of vehicles, creatures, weapons, armor, mm. uh, species. You know, it just was. It, there, there's a reason why it's endured, and I think that it was the you know the combination of science to bring things to life and science to inspire the things that we did bring to life. And you know, it, it, it didn't surprise me that there was so much overlap with you, Darren, as we sort of got to <laughs> know each other that, you know, because the, these, I think it occupies the same part of the brain, you know, and, and whether it was something that was real that we've never seen or something that wasn't real that we feel like is real because the stories made them real emotionally to us. And, and that's what you, I think that's what you learn is that stories are the things that make things sit in our in our memory so deeply and not get overwritten as we learn more things the things that feel like they have they're reserved they have reserved real estate in our brain <laughs> and sometimes that is what did it feel like when you went to the museum and you first looked up at, at the teeth of a t-rex or what did you feel like when you first saw you know when i went and saw a re-release of the original king kong downtown with my dad and i was little or the first time i saw star wars you know, and hopefully what we're doing as we present these creatures in such uh, in an emotionally um, dimensional way that people feel things and they connect with these these stories and then that plants a seed because it's, you know, part of it is, yes, how do we all come together and, 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 and speak as a community and bond through our um through our interests but it's also like how do we keep it going for the next generation how do how, how do we pass it along as as others have passed it to us and and i and, and that's part of the reason why we put as much care as we do into making sure that it's you know what we depict is defensible and and and, and maybe even push it in a direction that people don't necessarily expect to to make people curious about it even if they say oh that's not real well maybe they'll start talking about it or jumping on it uh, in a chat room or, or or doing some searches and next thing you know it opens them up to something else that another story that they might tell or you know getting more deeply into research or introducing their kids or family to it and I think that that's part that, that's part of the job that I didn't necessarily understand when I was getting into being a storyteller but it's the part as I get older that I value the most and um, and you know the curiosity and the that, that's sort of a selfish part of it. Like it's just something that's fun for me to do. But then when I see how people react to it and, and, and to hear from you that other people uh, who are experts in your field feel that we've actually uh, done a good job at honoring this field, 
is is something that I I, I find really you know I, I'm really happy to hear that because it's it's definitely something we set out to do as we started this. It's not just hey let's just let's just make this fun or exciting or entertaining. It's also like let's really hopefully this could sit alongside other documentaries done by these filmmakers. This is the best. This is the best one by a long shot. I I don't want to be too biased about it. I mean, I have worked <laughs> on it, but a fairly minor part. This is the best dinosaur documentary made by quite a long shot. And it's quite a commitment, by the way, from BBC and from Apple to do this because it's not, you know, this is not a, a, a layup from a, you know, a business standpoint. You know, it really it really relies yeah. upon people finding it and, and 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 spreading the word about it. But you know, the other thing I realized is that walking with dinosaurs many years ago, how how much impact that had on people who were growing up watching it, and um, just like Star Wars, you know, affected me, and I'm I'm now doing this. It, it these are important moments that sort of slide by you in in real time, but you realize that it actually people really connect with that stuff. I know, like Blade Runner, I worked with Harrison Ford, and for me to tell him, you know, how how important that film was to me. And, uh, you know, in high school and him saying, you know, it was a bomb at the time. Like it, it didn't, didn't do well. It was, they considered it a failure. And it's like, no, it wasn't it was mm, anything but my, a failure. One of my favorite films, yeah. You know, as far, and, and how it contextualizes things now and gives us a language as we're dealing with challenges of the future, like sci-fi. Like, it's not just about, did it win the weekend at the box office? It's like, did it, does it create context for how we deal with technology mm. as new technologies emerge? Is there, are there stories that laid out paths so that we can have a discussion around things in 2001 Space Odyssey or, you know, or, or, or Blade Runner or iRobot or, you know, all of these things are important uh, for us as a culture to be able to metabolize this, you know, how, how fast things are developing. Stories are important for that. And, uh, and and I think that as long as we keep science interesting for the next generation, we will invest in science. I don't just mean invest money. I mean invest like interest, human capital, attention. Because attention is really the limited resource right now because you got – we have a planet of a certain number of people and we have a certain amount of hours per day and that is a finite commodity. We have – 24 hours a day per person on the earth and that is all we have and what is that being used for right now is it being used for entertainment distraction is it being used for curiosity innovation you know we're fighting for it used to be things were boring like not that long ago there wasn't much to do so you're looking for things to keep you interested well now there's a lot of um competition for attention and so you know if we're having young people learning about dinosaurs that's time they're taking away from something else that's also really interesting so it's almost like you're fighting for a limited resource as you try to push people into keeping these um, innovations going and bringing up the next generation of people who are going to de dedicate themselves to these things so you know I, I you know i don't think about it that way often but it definitely is a consideration as we do these things uh I think we're, we're, we're in a very interesting moment in history. I guess it always feels like that where we're in transition. And, and then of course, technical innovation technology feels like it's exponentially growing. And I guess it's always felt that way as well. But um, I'm glad that we're using it for things that bring people into uh, not just being entertained in a, in a passive way, but actually invites them to, to learn more and spread the word and, and, and get into conversations, uh, either approving of or saying how we could have done better but at least it's a conversation about about science and and about about these things so 
anyway, just I, I know mm. we're getting close to the end. You know, I appreciate so much collaborating with uh, with both of you, uh, and and uh, and having worked on this show, and 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 just appreciative to the people out there who've watched this, the people who've from the community that are experts in this that have given us, you know, uh, support and 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 supported the show and. And giving your feedback and 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 as we steer forward into into new ground uh hopefully you'll all like it as much and and also to the people at, at apple and bbc for for you know giving us the you know permission and and resources and encouragement to do this you know it's something you know i have a lot of fun things i work on like i'm very lucky to have the, the opportunity to work on things that i like and i'm passionate about and and this one is uh, something that popped up. It's 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 one of the few projects that I'm working on that I didn't generate myself, but was so intrigued by what it was, and now I really feel like I'm part of this this group, and just really really fun and exciting to work on it. So so thank you all, and and and, and thanks to you too, and and thanks to the people who've given us this opportunity. That you said so many things there that were. Uh perfect ender to the entire conversation so thank you for all your comments just to clarify john conway's role in prius.com it was very small i don't want people getting the wrong impression there but um <laughs> no it's no, true that, that's phenomenal. well john see i'm going to take a look at but you know i also want to look at your other artwork and stuff because i you know, kid i kid i kid but, uh, that's... but whether you're working on the show or people that we've used as you know it's for inspiration it's all it's all part of the process uh, but i do look forward to seeing your work yeah, I mean, what a team. I mean, yeah, I, I I say all the time, dream team. I mean, everyone from the BBC, yourself, everyone at NPC, and oh my God, everyone at Apple, the support of the Natural History Unit. Um, yeah, what a what an amazing project. So happy with it. And so happy with everything you've said, John. There's like above and beyond way what we were expecting. I was going to pitch my Star Wars TV series to you. It's, called, hear it. it's called Zookeepers of Coruscant. And it's nice. about like, you know, they've gathered creatures from all over the galaxy. There's a couple of escapees. They have to go and like find these strange creatures that are hiding in the urban landscape. There's creatures that are inappropriately attracted to the various humanoids that are their keepers. And they also go on expeditions to search for like Star Wars cryptids. Like they've heard there's this creature that lives in the, I don't know, let's say the swamps of Naboo or whatever, or is somewhere on Dagobah. Does it even exist? Well, let's go find out. So I'll, I'll send there's a something script. there. There's yeah. something. There's something interesting yeah. there. There've been there've been a lot of pitches that have come flown around around uh, you know scientific you know uh, uh, how should I say treating it the genre as though it were a documentary around creatures, mm. uh, which is interesting. But there's a story. The important part's a story, right? You have to have characters you relate to. And it sounds like yes. yours is is kind of like verging on the Indiana Jones of it, except for the the people from zoos yeah go yeah, on, yeah, going yeah. around oh, it'll, it'll be around your humanoid it's, characters no doubt but uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and then you get to visit all the different planets and different different creatures yeah I, yeah I, look let me put it this way if you made it i would watch it that's a good sign <laughs> i'll let you know i so, should let john favreau know we'll in my Star Wars. i'll pass that along now i'll, <laughs> I'll say I'll, I'll tell my uh my my friends at lucasfilm who i'm dealing with uh daily i'll mention that so thank I'll you pass very much along. but it sounds it's a very um you know I love. I, I mean, part of what makes Star Wars Star Wars is is the creatures, right, and the, the mm -hmm. creativity of it, and and the and the different species, both sentient and otherwise. I think it's mm -hmm. super fun. Cool. But uh, yeah, been a pleasure, pleasure, it's... pleasure talking to you both. And uh, and and uh, and um, and so we, yeah, we we did it. Uh, we sign off with just with anything we need to promote. So John Conway, are you online? John Conway, are you on the internet? I'm on the internet. I am. 
johnconway.art and you can find me on Mastodon at john at sauropods.win John let me use my opportunity here to plug I guess uh, all of the, the third season of The Mandalorian is now available to stream on Disney Plus and most importantly for this audience we got Prehistoric Planet uh, the first five episodes are up uh, of, for, from the first season. And when, Darren, when do we launch officially the, the, May this season? May 22nd. May 22nd on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, I think you'll really like it. We've gone, I think, above and beyond what we did last time. And uh, we'd love to hear what you think about uh, Prehistoric Planet. Mm. And my name's Darren Nash. I blog at TetraboardZoology, TetZoo.com. And I tweet at... Not yet. We're having some trouble adapting him to the cold. Then we'll have to go out on tauntauns. Sir, the temperature's dropping too rapidly. That's right, and my friend's out in it. I'll cover Sector 12, have comm control set screen alpha. That line was not in the film. At Tetsu! <laughs> Thank you very That's much. A... Thanks for having me, guys. This Thank you fun. so much, John. <laughs>